So today, I just want to, I, I want to go over three, um, I guess, three characteristics that we see in Psalm 23 for our time. Um, three pictures of God, if you want to say it. Um, and it goes really kind of well throughout the psalm. God is our shepherd provider. God is our shepherd protector. And um, God is our host uh, pursuer. Now, um, and the first one, um, Psalm 23, uh, I kind of want to help us to understand, you know, what do we see? What, what is David trying to explain here? And the first metaphor that we see in Psalm 23 is that God is our shepherd provider, all right? The, the main metaphor here David uses is one of a shepherd, one that is often in Scripture. And if you also know, David was a shepherd himself, so he's probably had some good experience of being uh, a shepherd. Now, shepherds would care for sheep. And um, if, you, if you haven't read scripture, sheep are the most commonly used animal in all the scripture, about 400 times, okay? And so there's a reason why David is using this metaphor here. Because sheep, if you don't know, are not the most intelligent animals. They are often wander away, and, they, um, and if they're not guided or directed correctly to water and food, they could literally die from starvation or thirst, even if the food is only about 10 feet away. They're not that intelligent. They can't see well, hear well, or provide for themselves. So every sheep needs a shepherd to lead them to food and water. And so before I get to the other verses, what's really um, unique to this psalm is that David uses this personal pronoun, my shepherd. He's not saying he's you know, God is our shepherd. He is, but he's saying, my shepherd. There's already this intimacy that he has with God. And what David is showing here, and in the very first verse of our text, is that I shall not want. I lack nothing. I have everything that I need. And it really sets the foundation of what, G- what David is saying to God, that he does not need anything in the present or he does not need anything in the future. It's, he's saying this to God. And verse 2 says it very clearly that God is the one that leads him, or that allows him to lie down in green pastures and besides still waters. Now, um, you can think of this imagery, and you think it's just a place to rest or to have peace. But for a sheep, it's a place for them to eat and to drink. It's not just a place of rest. It's also a place for them to eat the luscious meadows. For a sheep, luscious green meadows is like their buffet, okay? It's any, everything and anything they can want is right in front of them, and there is no lack. So this imagery, it's really just showing to, to us that there is richness, abundance, and provision that God is providing for the sheep as the good shepherd. Now, we have to also remember, too, where David is writing from. Most likely, he's writing in a context and climate where there is just a lot of dry, a lot of rocky, a lot, not much lush meadows and streams of water. So he's saying that the the shepherd leads the sheep when there is not much green meadows and flowing waters to places where there is. And because a good shepherd does that, there will never be a lack of food, or a lack of water, or a lack of comfort, or a lack of peace and rest. And then in verse 3, David continues by saying that God restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness. Or another translation really is just right paths. 
when David writes, restores my soul, he isn't talking really about a spiritual sense, not that God restores our spiritual sense, just not that that's the only way, but more so that God restores the wholeness of my human life. He restores the very bones that I have, the very thirst that I'm quenching. David was saying, God restores my whole being, my, my physical strength, my mental health, my emotional capacity, and my spiritual soul. That word encapsulates the wholeness of the human being. But not only then is our whole being restored, but David also says that he has no lack of direction. Now, this whole first three verses, David is saying that the good shepherd, the shepherd that leads the sheep, will always provide everything the sheep needs. And what's interesting is if you look throughout, it's, it's he makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness. It's always God's initiative to provide for the sheep. It's always God's initiative. And if you, if you notice this, what's, what's amazing is that um, I feel like it's hard for us to understand this because we as people are often in a place where there's always abundance, right? America is kind of the country of abundance here. But wouldn't it be amazing, just picture this, if you or I could say, I lack nothing or I don't need anything? I mean, how many of you have said that? this week before? No one. None of us have said that. I don't lack anything right now. Like when, you know, just imagine if you're like scrolling on Facebook or on Amazon or you're walking the halls of Costco or Target, that there is not a single item or experience or solution you desire because you had everything you need. Like, can, can we even like imagine that? I feel like it's so hard for us to picture that. How could David say that? How could David say that I shall not want, that I believe God has provided everything for me? Well, I think it's because David is probably reminding himself of the most abundant, peaceful, and restful place he has ever experienced in his life. Now remember, David was a shepherd, and he probably was thinking about the restful green pastures and still waters that he was able to provide for his sheep when he was a shepherd and how his sheep, when they're in that space, really did not need anything else. That there was this quiet and gentle place where the shepherd was with the sheep and there was no other distractions around them. And I think the reason many of us have a really hard time saying, I shall not want, is because we are surrounded by so much noise, so many things and stuff and experiences and things clamoring for our attention that we forget how much God has actually provided for us and is with us. And honestly, um, if you look at a lot of research nowadays, especially in light of like this pandemic season, that there's research that shows that when we spend more time in nature or in spaces where we're detached from our phone or our computer and places with trees and waters and yes, bugs even and animals, that it actually provides better mental health for us in the long run. There's actually research behind that. And I think for us, this is a picture 
of David slowing down and reminding himself of when God was the most present and God provided the most was in this space of his creation that he could get away and he can get away from all the distractions that were around him and remember that in God, he has everything he needs, that there's nothing that he wants, that God provides all the things around him, but more so that God is with him. And this leads me to my second uh, metaphor or picture, that not only is God our shepherd and provider, but that God is our shepherd protector. Now, if you go to verse 4, what's really interesting is that um, uh, we get this sudden tone shift, right? Like green pastures and still waters, and then we get like Death Valley here. So you kind of like, David goes through this shift, and what David is doing is that the reality of our lives is that there, it's not just green pastures and still waters, that there are death valleys and dark valleys that come around in our lives. And we can, I have a picture here, I think, of like a valley. I mean, this is like a, you know, just one valley picture. But, you know, in some climates, valleys are places of a lot of like green and water and like growth. But in the Middle East, that's not the case, most likely. It's, these valleys are rocky, dry, ugly places. And also, this is places where there is no life. There's no water. There's no green. And then also in these places, these are the places where wolves would most like, sometimes wolves are, I don't know what lives here, hyenas. I have no idea what lives back there. But something lived in there where they would actually lurk and potentially attack sheep for their lunch. And so for a sheep trapped in a valley, it is probably the worst case scenario. They don't have anything to eat anything to drink, and they are vulnerable to attack. And so when David is picturing this, for us, now we're not like sheep and we're not like walking through these literal valleys here, but for us, many times we go throughout in our lives, probably in the past couple of years, I imagine all of us have gone through this at one point, where there is deep darkness, there is death, or there is depression that comes. And for David here, what he is saying is that even though I walk through seasons of darkness, of death, of depression, of despair, of disappointment, he is saying, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And he gives these two pictures of a rod and of a staff. And for a shepherd, there's a picture up here again, I have a lot of pictures today, but a rod and a staff, a rod is simply uh, a weapon that a shepherd would use to attack wild animals to defend the sheep very much a way to protect the sheep because as i mentioned before sheep are very vulnerable they are very weak they have like a zero star rating for self-defense they are they are pretty much worthless for self-defense and so the shepherd needs to fight them off david fought bears and uh, i think lions even to fight off those pr uh, predators against the sheep the staff is a bit longer and most likely it was used to grab the sheep from going ways that they should not be going very much like you don't want a sheep going off a ledge or going off the wrong direction or getting lost with the flock. You, they use that crook to bring the sheep back. And so I imagine a shepherd would do that. In a valley, they would have to constantly keep sheep with them close by, away from ledges, away from animals, to make sure that they are a part of the flock. And for David, these two imageries provide comfort for him because it reminds us that God guides, God protects his sheep. 
Now, a question, though, is um, as I was kind of, you know, working through this text, and, you know, it's really tough to kind of, as I was, like, getting this ready, it's really tough to prepare a sermon where it's almost all of us have maybe heard a sermon on Psalm 23. I've heard at least, like, four or five. Um, and so a question that would often come to mind, especially when I would read this psalm, is, is what, what is our valley of the shadow of death? Like, what, is, what does that look like for us? Because I don't, I don't imagine it looks all the same for us. I don't imagine my valley of the shadow of death looks the same as each one of yours. Um, like, I don't think it's life-threatening enemies that David was probably going through in his lifetime. So what do your valleys look like? For me, um, just kind of, because I can only share my experience, I can't share yours, but for me, my valleys um, have been, uh, in the past, I think, few years, just been facing a lot of disappointments in life. Things that I wish that have happened that didn't. Um, You know, some examples, disappointment of not being able to buy a house for our family that we tried looking for for quite some time. I've shared that before. Um, disappointment of losing a lot of uh, friendships and community during the COVID season. It was a really rough relational season. Uh, disappointments with different things of like my own like goals for my health or my work or our family or just different things that I wanted to get done that never ended up coming to fruition. And the more and more they pile on, disappointments turn slowly into, for me, depression. And, um, you know, I've shared this in the past, too, where this past season has been, there's been moments of, like, this depression and just wrestling with emotional and mental health where I just feel, like, stuck or joyous or tired or just hopeless. And I imagine for many of us that when we go through valleys, now, it could be disappointments, it could be really hard work situations, it could be just stressful, you know, relationships that you are going with, who knows? Um, All of us, in those moments where we're in the valley, it's just hard. It's just, there's no other way to say it. It's just really hard. Um, and sometimes the valleys seem a lot longer than you would like it to be. And what I find so fascinating about Psalm 23 is that David just doesn't say that we are in the valley of the shadow, the, the, the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. And it's not like God will then bring me out of the mountaintop and, and he'll, he'll bring me back to the green pastures and the, and the in the streams of, of water. It's, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make that jump. But what David simply says, and what's enough for him in the valley, is that God is with him. So David's circumstances don't change, but his awareness of who is protecting him and guiding him does change. It's, if you, if you notice too, which, and I never thought about this until reading some commentaries, but what it says in verse 4, David, David doesn't write the valley of death. He doesn't write that. I mean, some translations kind of say that. But a better translation, really, is what you see in the ESV, is he writes the valley of the shadow of death. Why does he add that word shadow? Why is that significant? Well, look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's, I, I find this fascinating. He says that it is not the valley of death, but the valley of the shadow of death. For death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's or for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite, the shadow of a sword cannot kill, the shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not therefore be afraid. I think David is writing 
the word shadow, because compared to God who was with them, every single obstacle in the valley looks like a shadow. It cannot cut, it can, it can touch him, but it cannot affect him. It cannot kill him. It cannot do harm to him. And for David, he was reminded that the one who can defeat armies with a single word, who has the authority to heal sicknesses and can even stop rain, and even has the power to stop death and give life to breathless things, that this one protecting and guiding him can overshadow anything that is in the dark valley. So it's not so much that God transforms our circumstances that brings us no fear. It is simply that God who is above and over all circumstances is with David. That's why he has no fear. That's why for even us in our darkest valleys, when no matter the hardships that are around us, we do not fear because God, who is over all those things, who sees all those things and are, are mere shadows compared to what he can do, that's why we do not have to fear. Which leads me to my last uh, metaphor, the third metaphor, that God is our host pursuer, our host pursuer. Now, verse 5 through 6, it, it now moves from the valley. So we were like in green pastures and, and, and still waters. Now we're in the deepest valley and dark valleys. And then we move to the house of the Lord. It's really interesting. If you look at Psalm 23, kind of the progression of the locations that David has, the sheep are really now um, uh, the guest going through in, in, in the psalm, in the, in the language. And so verse 5 through 6, verse 5, it says, uh, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, th this really is like probably the most odd picture out of all the parts of Psalm 23. Um, but this movement from the valley to the table, it, 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 it shifts the metaphor. It shifts the metaphor from sheep and shepherd to now a host to his guest, a host to his guest. And where the host is preparing, which is crazy to think about, a table, a bountiful table for the guest when the guests are facing all of his enemies. It really makes no sense. But this is kind of the way that David sees the way God providing this generous hospitality to those that are with him. And it's, it's, it's interesting because in David's time, a host, you know, you know, I feel like nowadays when people come over to your house or even to like to my own house, you kind of be nice and you're like, hey, do you want something to drink? Like some water or, or maybe tea if I want to heat water up, right? Like maybe tea. But in this time, in this time when David is writing it, hospitality was a really, really high value. So when someone would come over to your home, you would always give a five-star treatment. You would put out food. Even if you didn't have food, you would cook food. You would make food. You would give the best drink. You would give a place for them to wash up, to sleep. And this whole language of anointing my head with oil, they would often use a mixture of olive oil and fragrance, which was highly valuable, to pour over their heads as a symbol of honor, but also for a traveler, a, a, a way to make sure they smell pleasant to make sure they feel valued and honored. And so in this way, it's not just that, you know, they're giving a little bit of oil. He's anointing. He's pouring oil over them. And in the same way as the cup, and I love that illustration that Thomas used, that they are not just pouring enough water in the cup, but this 
host is pouring abundance so that the cup is overflowing and that there will never, ever be enough, that they will continue to pour as much as the guest wants. And so what David is showing here is that amidst the valleys, amidst the enemies that are around him, God, as the host, is pursuing David to provide over an abundance more than he could even imagine in that moment. That God provides all this because God has no limits. So in this radical act of hospitality, the guest troubles, the guest tears, all the valley, all the hardship that he's gone through, it should disappear at the table. And so for the guest that's welcomed at this table, immediate joy and relief should be felt. And that's why we see in verse 6, uh, very clearly, that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. More than just being welcome to the table of God, David also recognized that the presence of God would always be with him because he is able to dwell in God's house. And when we see the word goodness and mercy, and if you have Bible, they may have a little like, you know, like a footnote there. That word mercy, it's better translated as steadfast love. It's where we get the word hesed from, um, the enduring love of God. Um, these two words are these characteristics. They are almost never used to describe humans in scripture. The word goodness and steadfast love are almost always used to describe God and his character. So what David is saying is, surely God's goodness and God's steadfast love shall follow me. And I don't know if you remember the, the other translations I read, but that word follow, honestly, it's probably too weak of a word. A better word is that God's goodness and mercy will chase after you, will pursue you all the days of your life. You know, in a way, um, it's, it's amazing because these, um, this last verse, or really these two last verses, um, it's probably the most encouraging part of the entire psalm. You know, many of us rem remember kind of the, the imagery of the shepherd or the water or um, the valley. But the last two verses are probably the most encouraging because if you just look at the psalm in its entirety, the first five or the first four verses we see is um, kind of the, the shepherd and sheep language where the shepherd is guiding the sheep to um, receive the blessings and receive the protection. But when we get to verses 5 to 6, instead of finding provision through being led to green pastures and still waters, it's God is setting the table that is prepared and that is firmly rooted. It's not changing, right? He's not leading, but he's welcoming the guests to the table. And instead of being, instead of God being with us in the valley, it's no longer that, but God's goodness is love that is pursuing you so much so that you can dwell in the eternal and never changing house of God. So there is this movement from God kind of being with us to now God bringing us to a firmly rooted place where his goodness and provision and presence will always be dwelling there. And I think David does this because he's really intentional about where the ultimate goal, uh, where the ultimate goal and longing of all of our hearts are hoping for. That God is wanting us to bring us to a place of firmness and rootedness and a place of eternity to be with 
him. Now, um, what I What's, what I wanted to also kind of share a little bit, and this kind of follows um, our summer uh, book study that some of us did, and we finished up actually this past week. Um, and it's this book, the, the Prodigal God. There's a few copies left, too, if you want to read it on your own. Feel free to grab one if you promise to read it. Um, you, can, you can grab one. Um, but in the book, it does, you know, Tim Keller, it's basically, if you're familiar with the parable of the lost son or the parable of the two sons, it's kind of a deeper dive in that parable. But it's really powerful because it's the parable of these two lost sons. Let me just kind of go over it really quickly if you don't remember the parable. But simply, it's the, the younger son asks his father um, for his inheritance, basically telling the father, like, if you, I wish you were dead, give me your inheritance, and I'm going to live my life the way I wanted to live. And so he lives his life in kind of reckless living, and after a while, foolishly spends all his money, and then he is now poor, and he has to work amongst pigs, and he wishes that he could live and be like the shepherd, like the servants of his father's house. And so he goes back, right? And he, he wants to repent, and he's going to say to his father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, just let me be a servant. But in that moment, right, the father sees him at a far distance, and the father runs and pursues after the younger son. And he welcomes him in. He can't even finish his repentance speech. He welcomes him in back to the house. And then the father um, kills the fattened calf, and they have this huge party because his lost son has now been found. And then the second part of the story is that the elder brother, who is the one who is obedient, he listens well, he's doing all the things he can to make sure his father's house is well, he hears this party. And of course, as he hears this part, he asks the servants what's going on. And as he hears this, what's going on, he knows now that his younger brother, who wasted all of his inheritance, who shamed his family, who did not deserve to be welcomed back into his house, was thrown the best possible party in the world for him at that moment. And as the eldest brother hears this, he definitely does not want to go back into that house. Instead, he stays outside the house in frustration, in anger, because out of all the work that he has done for the father, he does not get any kind of party like that. And so there's bitterness in him. There's resentment in his heart. So in that same way, the father hears about the eldest brother, and he runs and pursues the eldest brother, wanting him to come back into the celebration that the younger brother has now been found to put down his pride and to realize that there is a party in his home to celebrate the found younger brother. And what Tim Keller does in that parable, um, is much, he goes much deeper in the, in the book, but what he reveals that the story is not really about two, or not, it's not about one lost younger son, but the story is really about two lost sons. That one is lost because he pursued worldly ways. He pursued things that he thought would fill his longing, but they all led to emptiness. And the older one is lost too, because in his way, he is trying to find his fulfillment in obedience and religiosity to fulfill the longing of getting what he wanted, which was good works or trying to feel fulfilled or some sort of status. But in actuality, as you see in the parable, that it just produced frustration when he didn't get what he wanted and when he could not, he didn't get what he wanted, which was to get the things his, bro his younger brother got, which was a party for him to celebrate. And so in this story, essentially, both are lost. And I think it actually reveals in us 
that when we read Psalm 23, um, we often have a hard time believing that Psalm 23 is real for all of us, that we, it really applies to our lives, that we really have a hard time saying, I shall not want. And I think it's because all of us are not the sheep in the story. We're not even the, the host that's being, the guest that's being welcomed in the story. But we are, we're honestly like the younger and the elder brother. We are lost children. We are truly lost because we really have a hard time believing this. We are the ones who are running away from God in whatever way we can. We are oftentimes running away. Maybe we are running away trying to fill our lives with the things in this world, our careers, our family, our successes, our gratifications. But I think most of us are trying to, um, we are kind of lost because we are trying to earn God's um, love. We're trying to earn God's ways. We're trying to be obedient children, good Christians, um, good citizens, rural followers, not out of love for God, but because we desire a certain reputation or a certain earning or a certain longing that maybe if we do enough of these things, God will reward us. And what we realize in this psalm is that Psalm 23 can only be as beautiful as those images that I've shown you in the beginning of the sermon. It can only be that beautiful if we realize just how lost and needy and small we really are. This psalm is only beautiful to us if we realize that we cannot provide for ourselves, that we cannot earn anything before God, that we will always be lacking This will only be beautiful to us if we realize that we cannot protect ourselves in the darkest valley, that we have no hope in ourselves, that we are also not welcomed to this table and even to God's house on our own. The beauty of Psalm 23 is only when we realize that this is true because someone came and pursued us first. It is only beautiful to us when we realize that the one who pursued us was our, our, is and was our good shepherd who would provide and protect us. It only is beautiful to us when we realize that there was one who came down from heaven's heights to give us the comfort and rest and lead us on the right paths. This psalm is only more beautiful to us if we realize that our God who came, Jesus Christ, to become man and God at the same time would be with us in the darkest of valleys by being with us, but not only by being with us, but by dying on behalf of us so we would not have to die in that valley. So that instead of the sin and brokenness that separated us from God's love and goodness, all the things that we wish that we can experience in this psalm, Jesus Christ would be the one who would say, because of what I have done for you, I can prepare a table before you. I can welcome you into my Father's house, not because of what you have done or what you think you can do or what you can try to find in this world, but only because I have pursued you. Psalm 23, church, is only beautiful to us once we realize that it was first God in the way of Jesus Christ who has allowed us to come into this space and give us all of this amazing goodness and love 
that pursued us from, um, from his death and resurrection. And so uh, my challenge for us today is that, you know, Psalm 23 can so easily be um, read and just kind of accepted because we've heard it so often. It can be kind of tradition or it can just be, um, uh, yeah, just a song that we hear a lot of times. But my challenge for us is um, it, it comes from this quote, actually, that I found from Dallas Willard. He's a, a, a past, he, he passed away a while ago, but he's a pastor. And he wrote an entire book, actually, on Psalm 23. And it's not like a small, like, thin book like this. It's like a 300-page book on Psalm 23. And he writes this in the beginning introduction. He says, one of the greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things they already profess to see and believe. Knowing about things, knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them, does not mean we actually believe them. When we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act if it were true. Acting as if things are true means, in turn, that we live as if they were so. He is saying that for us, many times we read Psalm 23, we read much of Scripture, and we don't actually walk like we believe them. We don't actually live our lives believing that this is true. And so my one challenge for all of us today, and even for myself, is that we would truly believe these words. And in order to do that, one of the ways that I would just want to challenge us is that, that we would read Psalm 23 over and over again. Not in like repetition or not because we have to or not out of tradition, not just to like cross a checklist that we have throughout our day, but so that we can actually believe and walk in the ways that Psalm 23 tells us of who God is and what he gives to us. That he is able to fully provide for us, to fully protect us, and to fully pursue you no matter what you are going through right now. And the last slide I have actually is a list of songs that are actually based on Psalm 23. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a ton. And, and the reason why I share this is that perhaps some of us need to listen to Psalm 23 more in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives in order for us to actually believe that it is true. To actually believe that I shall not want, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And there is so much more in this psalm. And so that's my challenge for us today, to, to read this, to listen to the songs, um, to maybe even go out in, in nature and somewhere to actually let this psalm root itself in our hearts. Um, and that's, that's my prayer and challenge for you. Um, you know, the last thing I'll share and then I'll pray is that uh, a while ago, I, um, you know, we're, we have young kids and, and, and babies uh, coming, you know, coming soon. And, um, you know, for kids, one of the most popular games that, uh, you know, you do with like a little baby is peekaboo, right? Peekaboo, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, if you don't know, it's like, you know, you hide your face and say, you know, you open and say peekaboo and you hide it again. And the baby is confused. The baby like literally thinks that you have disappeared, right, that you're gone, that somehow, like, mommy or daddy or whoever is doing it is no longer there. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, doctors and, you know, scientists, they, they say that um, it's because for a young baby, they don't understand this concept called object permanence, which essentially is that if you hide something um, behind, like, some object, 
the baby has no idea that that same thing is still behind the wall that is covering that thing. They have no idea. And over time, they get that. Uh, they get that over time, like when mommy or daddy, you know, plays peekaboo, that mommy and daddy have not really disappeared or like, or like gone away, but they're still there behind his or her hands. And I think for a lot of us, and the reason why we need to read Psalm 23 over and over and over again is that many times life distractions are often the, the very walls that we have um, in our own lives, that many times we have, you know, you know, like work, our hardship, our stress, our anxiety, that are the very barriers that we fail to see the character and goodness of God. And so we really think God is not there. We really think God is gone. We really think that God's promises are no longer there for us. His character is no longer going to be there for us. But in actuality, God is always there with us. And so as we continue to read Psalm 23 over again, listen to its word, even memorize Psalm 23, what we're doing is we're slowly peeking behind those barriers and seeing that God is really there, that God really wants to be there with you and for you, no matter what you're going through. Um, and so that my prayer and my hope for all of us is that we let Psalm 23 uh, be Psalm 23 in our hearts and lives. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word in Psalm 23. Thank you so much for all that you continue to do in our hearts and in our lives. Um, humble us, God, to um, be willing to um, listen, um, to, to, to read, to dive deeper and deeper into your word more and more so that we would know that you are truly there for us, that you are our good shepherd, that you are our host, that you will never... Um, that your goodness and mercy will follow us all the, follow us all the days of our lives. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word this afternoon. I pray that it would go with us and that we would not forget, um, God, that you are with us no matter what we're going through, God, no matter the hardships, no matter the stress, no matter the fears that we are facing in our lives, God. I pray that we would know that you are with us and that we can dwell in your house forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand.